course, but again, we appreciate uh, founders loaning him out to us. It's been actually a blessing now that John's been here so many times, getting to know him as a brother and knowing we've got such uh, kindred spirits just on the other side of Houston. So, John, uh, looking forward to hearing the word from you this morning. Good morning. It's good to see some familiar faces and thankful to Pastor Dan for entrusting me with his pulpit. I do not take that lightly. Um, And just know that we do have uh, people from our church who are praying for you guys and for your pastor. So um, be encouraged by that. Um, Today we are going to be in the book of Titus. Uh, I figured... The last time I was here, we were in Titus, and so why not just continue on to that next chapter, (laughs) in chapter 3. And so that's where we will be this morning. So Titus chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter, but we're going to uh, primarily be focusing on verses 1 through 11 this morning. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And these things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we can gather. God, we thank you for your word that's living and active. We pray, God, that you would be here among us, helping us to, to learn, to, to draw closer to you, uh, to be challenged, Lord. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy that's poured out upon us. Um, I pray, Lord, that now I would decrease, that you may increase, and that your word would go forth and accomplish what you please. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so that 
is, is there a feedback or does it sound weird to you guys or is it just in my ear? You good? All right. Um, that passage that we read earlier with Deuteronomy 8, you know, I was, I was thinking about that text uh, as I developed this sermon because there was this series of reminders for them that they would remember all that the Lord had commanded them, that, um, you know, he, that they would remember that he led them through the wilderness and brought them out, that he provided clothes and uh, when they were hungry, he gave them food. When they were thirsty, he gave them drink. Um, but he provided these commandments for them. He was reminding them uh, that they would walk in his ways and that they would fear him. And that there is much to be reminded of. Uh, you know, as Old Testament saints, they were to be reminded of the things of God. Um, as, in the New Testament, we see that there are many occasions where uh, they are being reminded of the scriptures and of God's truth. And, and, and I think about us as Christians, we too are to be reminded of the things of God. And many of you may have children. Uh, if you have children, I'm sure you have experience where you need to tell them something and tell them something again and tell them something again and maybe tell them something again. <laughs> You're constantly reminding them because they're not listening. Uh, sometimes we, as Christians, uh, may find ourselves there. Um, and throughout the letter of Titus, there is a consistent theme, a consistent teaching that is being brought forth. And it's something that's a great reminder for us, that God is calling these saints to godly living. Um, what we see, what we find is a fruit of salvation, a salvation that's to produce a life that's upright, living before God and man. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, as we, I mentioned last time, it gives the qualifications of the elders, right? We see these godly characteristics of how these men are to live. Uh, contrasted to that, Paul speaks to a camp of false teachers, which we see in verse 16 of chapter 1. There's a stark contrast. He says that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless of any good deed. So there are these men, these elders, who are called to be set apart to live righteously and godly. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are these false teachers of these who are being driven along by false teaching that they, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. They are detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul instructs Titus to uh, speak things that are fitting to healthy doctrine, uh, which... Titus is then to go on and instruct these believers of such that they would live according to it. Uh, but in verse 2 of chapter, uh, chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, speaking of Titus, he says, In all things, though, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine uh, dignified. So Titus isn't just to go on and instruct people of such things, but he is to be an example of good deeds. The last time I was here, chapter 2, verse 14, we had a purpose statement of God's grace for the believers, that they would be zealous for every good deed, and it was because God's grace has been poured out upon them. And now here in chapter 3, it begins with a command for Titus to remind the believers in Crete of things that have been taught to them, so that they would be ready for every good deed. And Paul even finishes the letter by saying our people must so learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unproductive. 
But Paul is wise to make it clear that we are not saved on the basis of good deeds which are done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So as saved ones, um, we are saved according to the faith, according to grace that is poured out upon us, yet we experience such a salvation. Hopefully everyone in this room has experienced this salvation that ignites righteous living. And what a beautiful truth. And so I want to encourage you with the fact that living righteously, it doesn't have to be cumbersome. Because the one who saves is sovereign to save and he's sovereign to keep. He's sovereign to preserve and care for his children. And certainly it takes work and it takes discipline. But we get to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, we get to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We shouldn't look at it as like, man, I have to to serve God today. You know, sometimes we may say that about our job, right? I have to go to work today. But we get the privilege to serve God as his children. So for our message this morning, we're going to walk through a series of reminders for maintaining godly living. And it's going to be under three headings, so if you're taking notes. uh, The first heading is the obligation for godly living. So there's an obligation for godly living. The second one is a motivation for godly living. A motivation. And the third one is the response for godly living. So point number one, we see this in verses one through two, the obligation for godly living, which says, in verse one, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good deed. And now I am well aware (laughs) that that verse in and of itself could be a whole sermon. I mean, this whole chapter actually could be like a four series sermon. And so I'm not going to get deep into the details of, you know, Uh, what it means to be subject to the authorities and rulers. I would leave that to your pastor. I'm sure he's been shepherding you over the past year, especially um, on this particular subject matter. Um, But we see that there is a reminder here that they they have been taught that they need to be subject to rulers and authorities, to their government. And we, if we've read through the New Testament, we know this truth as well. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Every person is to be subject to to their governing rulers and authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. So this is certainly a challenge, especially in the context of Romans. They had someone like Nero who was ruling over them, yet they're called to be subject to the government because God is the one who established it for his purpose. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 15 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors sent by him to punish of, for the punishment of evildoers. And the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you will silence and ignite silence in the foolishness, foolish ones. And so even in Peter's context there, are those who are being dispersed. They're being driven out of their homeland, being uh, put to death in many cases um, because of their faith. But yet here they have a call to be subject to rulers and authorities. How challenging would that be us in America? We have not experienced such a thing, though we see on the horizon that something is coming. But we do have a reminder in Acts 29, or 529, sorry, that reminds us 
that our primary focus is on the obedience of God, right? We must obey God rather than man. So if our authorities, if our governing officials are causing us to go against the word of God or causing us to go against our conscience, a conscience that's one that's convicted and convinced of the scriptures, then we cannot obey. So in some sense, yes, we are to be subject to those governing officials, but if it comes to a point where we need to obey God or obey man, we obey God. Out of our obedience, there is an underlying submission. You know, ultimately, good citizens, practically speaking, good citizens are law-abiding. They, they recognize that for the most part, uh, the, the, the laws that are put in place are for good, right? So that there's not chaos. Um, but sometimes in our broken and fallen world, um, things go beyond what is good into what is bad, and we cannot submit to that. So under the ob- obligation for godly living, we have the reminder to submit to governing officials, but we also have a reminder, we have an obligation for people in general, which is in verse 2, as it says, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So not maligning anybody means not slandering or reviling them. And if you think about it, people are created in the image of God. And so what does that say about your theology or your heart if you are constantly uh, slandering people or defaming them? Um, scripture says much to say, or has much to say on how we are to conduct our speech. And if Scripture says anything about anything, we pay attention. But if Scripture has a lot to say about something, we pay attention. Uh, further, we must also see that uh, there is a reminder in that we are not only to um, be godly in our speech, but godly in our conduct. And we are to be a peaceable people. Right? How are you doing in this area? especially given our current climate, with so much back and forth and tension with current affairs. Are you being peaceable or are you provoking anger? Are you being argumentative? We are to be gentle. And this is to say that we are a kind of person who's gracious. You know, as a forgiven people, we ought to be a forgiving people. As much as we have received grace, we should extend grace. Uh, and, and when it comes to speaking truth, it means we do it lovingly, and we do it with the right attitude. Uh, often, you know, faithful Christians, they are patient when, bearing, when, when, when they're being wronged against. And what's beautiful is that oftentimes good and godly people are ready to spring up and, and to spring forth to help those who are being wronged. So we come alongside them with a gentle spirit. And we're showing consideration for all men. And that means we do this by way of an attitude of humility. And, you know, one lexicon describes this phrase as being idiomatic for um, not, uh, not raising your voice or one who is speaking softly. And so what it's representing, what it's demonstrating is that the, that the one who is being considerate for all men means that they are not argumentative. It's opposite of that. They, they are reminded that, um, that as they engage and encounter people, that you can't win souls or you can't help people see the truth of God by being argumentative. It takes a humble spirit. Have you ever known this kind of person who loves to argue? (laughs) Uh, They don't show consideration for people. Maybe you are that person. Repent. This passage reminds us to 
be gentle, peaceable, to malign no one. So when we, when we live, we speak. We do so as people who are truly set apart for Christ. So these characteristics that are ascribed for the believer, they're reminders for us or when we're, we're dealing with people. We have an obligation to live godly. That's my first point, the obligation for godly living. Secondly, we have a motivation for godly living here in our text, verses 3 through 7. Look with me at verse 3. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And what do we see here? Paul is reminding Titus and his readers of what they once were. Paul even includes himself in this. That this reminder is to help motivate them and spur them on to godly living. So we we need a reminder of our past life. And what I don't mean by this is that we would hold on to our past life. We don't hold on to our mistakes and and the hurt and the harm that was done to us. And we don't hold on to our past life in a sense that glorifies sin. But what we do is we press on remembering who we once were and seeing the miraculous saving work of Christ. The miraculous work that was found in the sovereign hand of God. How often do you remind yourself of how hopeless and helpless you were or are without Jesus? And I think a lot of us in here are pretty familiar with what the Bible describes as lost humanity. So in addition to this text, we see Romans 3, for example, that says, there is none righteous, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God, for all have turned aside, uh, they have become worthless, there is none who does good, their tongues are deceitful, they're quick, their feet are quick to shed blood, they're corrupt from head to toe. Romans 5 describes the lost person as being helpless and ungodly, an enemy of God. Ephesians 2 says that they walked according to the, the power of the world, uh, living in accordance with their flesh that they were indulging in their desires, that they were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 4, they were futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, that they were hard in their heart, they were calloused. The psalmist in Psalm 51, 5 even says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin I was conceived in my mother's womb. I cover all this because I I want us to consider the depth of despair for the one before coming to know Christ. Uh, when, we, when we recognize this, when we remember it, and we set our gaze upon what Christ did in order to save a sinner, it ought to catapult us to an extreme motivation for godly living. It, it also helps us to be patient, to be gentle, and to show consideration for people. Uh, the need for giving grace is understood all the more. So no matter if you grew up in the church, uh, you got saved at a young age, Perhaps you have lived a pretty moral life up until this point, or you were hooked on drugs, you had sex outside of marriage, you were addicted to porn, uh, you drank like there's no tomorrow, you uh, are, uh, were an angry person, you were unforgiving. No matter what extreme or what side of the fence you're on, apart from Christ, we're all the same. We're enemies of God, deserving of His wrath, and the past was and is foolish. It's fueled by disobedience and waywardness as we're enslaved to worldly passions and pleasures and evil things. And speaking of myself, I know I hated God and I hated people. But now I have this understanding of the condition of the heart of man and I understand my need. And so, 
As Christians, there is, yes, there is still a sin hangover, but for the unbeliever, sin is even more real. Unbelievers are following a a false guide in life that is set on a course for a damnable eternity. And we once followed that train as well. So you want motivation for godly living. Remember who you were and where you were headed before you met Christ. But also remember the fact that Jesus did save you. We see in verses 4-6 through it says, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love and kindness had appeared for mankind, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And what we see in this reminder of our salvation is, first, the source of salvation, which is seen in verse 4. God is the source. Uh, It's through His kindness and generosity that we could even be saved. And though there's a a dark hue from our pre-Christian state, the, the light of God and His grace shines brightly into our present and our future. And one day, God's grace will appear a second time, right, in His second coming, uh, and in the resurrection of the saints, there will be this inauguration for a future hope and glory. And all of this becomes a reality because of the sovereign hand of God. God is the one who saves, and God is the one who will save. And, and, and there's this pivotal moment, what we see here in this verse, when it says, when the kindness of our great God and Savior has come. So this when, we once were identified in sin and death, but when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, God's grace broke forth into our world, putting us on a trajectory for a new life in Christ, a new life that's found in Him. He is the source. I thought it was interesting that this phrase in the Greek the love of mankind, some of your translations may say loving kindness. It's the same word that's used in Acts 28.2 describing this extraordinary welcome by the natives in Malta for Paul and his shipwrecked companions. So I say we can consider that there's a tone of a welcoming reception here for God's people into salvation when the loving kindness appeared. God's people were welcomed into his arms. You want motivation for godly living? Meditate on that. What else are we reminded of? Note the basis of salvation, just seen in verse 5, that the works that are done in righteousness, that those works are done with a motivation of trying to attain the righteousness, which is simply impossible because righteousness is a gift. Uh, contrasted to these deeds is the mercy of God. That's, that's the basis on which man is saved, by the mercy of God. And this means um, he didn't give us what we deserve. Right? You have grace that we're, we're getting what we don't deserve, but mercy is that we didn't get what we deserve, which was his eternal wrath. First Peter 1.3, you've heard me quote this 
several times, but it's one of my favorite texts that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's a work of God on the basis of his mercy. He is the source on which we are saved, and on the basis of his mercy we are saved. This text also reminds us of the means of the salvation for which we are saved. It's by the washing and renewal, the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 language. Uh, Listen to what the prophet says. He says, Then I will sprinkle you clean with water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes and be careful and follow my ordinances. See that there's this cleansing and this renewal that causes godly living. That Ezekiel text makes clear as well what Jesus was communicating in John 3 about being born again or being born from above. When Jesus answered Nicodemus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there's this water that's symbolic for cleansing and renewal, which is what the Spirit does in salvation and regeneration. Regeneration points to the entering of the new life, while the renewal points to a qualitative nature of the new life. A Spirit was given by the Father through the Son. He was poured out generously on us who believe. And God decisively gave His children a helper, the third person of the Trinity. He gave us a helper in order to carry out His purpose for us here on earth. So you want motivation for godly living, meditate on that. There's a nice little theological nugget here, though, in this extended sentence. It's a side note, but (laughs) it's also a motivation for godly living. And that our salvation is a Trinitarian work, right? God the Father initiated it in verse 4. God the Spirit uh, produced it in verse 5. And God the Son secured it in verse 6. So the, the whole Godhead is at work in securing your salvation. So as a motivation, we remember the source, the means, the basis, and the result of our salvation, which is in verse 7 that says, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the result of our salvation is that we would be justified by His grace, meaning we would be put in right standing with God. We are legally declared righteous in the heavenly courtroom as sons and daughters of God. We're saved by grace through faith, So grace and faith, they cannot be disconnected or disassociated from each other. Romans 5 says that being justified by faith, you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. That peace with God means that we are no longer enemies of God, no longer hostile, but we have been made right with Him. Have you been justified in order to have peace with God? And if you have, are you living like you have peace with God? Or are you still living like one who was an enemy? 
And what does this text here in Titus assure us of? Well, as believers, uh, our sin has been atoned for. The, the wrath of God no longer looms over us. Rather, we stand in the presence of God in the righteousness of Christ, declared righteous now and forevermore. And we are co-heirs with Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. And in Him we have a blessed hope, eternal life. Uh, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, Paul says in Ephesians. So what more do we need for a motivation for godly living? And what did we see? We saw the obligation for godly living, right? It was put on display in our remembrance, and this being submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. We were also reminded of how we ought to speak and act towards people. Second, we saw the motivation for godly living, so we tap into remembering our past life, who we were, what we were, what we deserved before Christ, and remembering the salvation that was extended to those who believe in the various nuances, the source, the means, the basis, the result. And third, we have a response for godly living found in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So there is a connection between right doctrine and our response to it. So this trustworthy statement, literally, it's, it means a faithful word. And it's pointing back to verses 4 through 7, which provided that beautiful tapestry of the gospel. It was a beautiful synopsis of what the gospel is. And you don't want to read past that. We encounter rich theology and truths which ought to prompt us to action. Sound doctrine produces healthy speech. Sound doctrine produces right conduct. And because of this trustworthy statement, Titus can speak confidently. Because of this trustworthy statement, we can speak confidently. We can even go on living confidently, assured in what God has done and will do for his people. God has declared it, and we have encountered it. It is true and trustworthy. And it's interesting that the text specifies the purpose of these believers hearing this declaration, that the result of the people of faith would be careful or be devoted to engage in good deeds. So they hear, they're reminded of truth, and then it provokes them to a response for godly living. And a practical implication that John Kitchen drew from this, he said, we need preachers to preach the word with conviction. A lack of conviction in the pulpit breeds a lack of consecration in the pew. So he says, we need preachers to preach the word with conviction because a lack of conviction in the pulpit leads to a lack of consecration in the pews. This consecration means a set-apart, devoted life unto the Lord which brings forth set-apart and devoted living not only as individuals but as a body. And Paul goes on and he says, these things, speaking of the good deeds, they're good and profitable for men. So what does that part of the verse suggest? Well, it suggests that good deeds are not just good for the person performing them, but 
for those who are recipients of them as well. So they are helpful and beneficial for the subject and the object. <laughs> and how often do we make decisions to do things based on how we think they're going to impact us? We are to be devoted and careful to engage in good deeds, to the obedience of God, not just for the benefit of us, but for the benefit of everyone. And it's interesting, there's a connection here. I believe it has to do with having a right doctrine um, that comes to this next section in verse 9. It says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So in our response for godly living, we've got to remember our position towards false teachers and false teaching. Paul wrote in chapter 1 of verse 14 of Titus, he said, Do not pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments, the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. These the, the, the word there, do not pay attention. It, it doesn't just mean don't focus on those things. Don't set your mind on those things. No, it means don't bring them near. Don't cozy up to those things. And here he says avoid foolish controversies. Avoid the genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law. This is a compound that says to place aside. Do not stand around it. Don't place yourself aside these false teachings. Rather, shun it. Why is this necessary? Because what's being taught is idle. It's empty. It's useless. We got to guard ourselves against the influence of it. And in our current context here in America, it lends ear to the woke movement, a a false gospel that's a social gospel. It's made its way into evangelicalism, and it's not going away anytime soon. Other things we see going on in the church is a big push towards women being pastors, homosexuality, transgenderism, being normalized, and even bringing these people into positions of authority in the church. Uh, I, I work for a nonprofit. We help churches uh, with various resources, so I have to look into a lot of churches looking for contacts and that sort of thing. And I'm just blown away by how many websites I go to, and the first thing that pulls up is like a pride flag, and there's all this literature on being you know, trans and all this stuff, and even pastors who once were women who are now men, and it's, you would think that it might be one or two or three, but here in Houston, I can't tell you the number of churches regularly that I'm going to their websites, and this is just blatant. Um, so there, as Christians, we're called to take a stand against these things. Uh, it's a process, but what we see going on is that these people who are affirming such things like the social gospel, the, you know, the LGBTQ, all that stuff, what they're doing is they are essentially not just diminishing the Word of God, but they are doing away with, they are denying the inerrancy of Scripture. And we are to avoid these things. Now there may be a time, you know, we have to interact with them. We interact with the false teaching and the false teachers for our growth, for perhaps their growth and the defense of the gospel, but I will say, be discerning that it doesn't become something where it's just a debate, right? Like, it, be discerning that your good intention is to bring clarity 
to the gospel and to the scripture, but at some point it could become a foolish waste of time. But nevertheless, we do stand firm on truth. We know that we cannot win people, as I mentioned before, on the basis of our debating skills or reason and logic. It takes the Spirit, it takes the power, power of His Word to penetrate their heart. But in our response to godly living, we do need to remember our position for false teaching and false teachers. But we also remember our attitude towards the factious man. We see that in verses 10 through 11, which says, uh, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is being self-condemned. So I'd say, first off, don't be this factious person. (laughs) Don't be the one causing division. But secondly, we can't afford to have this kind of disease in the congregation, right? Uh, This cause of division, it's corrupt, it's warped. And some of you may recall in Romans 16, 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, or brothers and sisters, keep your eye off of those who cause dissension and hindrance, contrary to the teaching from which you have been taught, and turn away from them. There he says to turn away from them, to keep an eye on it, turn away from them. Here he says reject them. That's some strong language. You know, this refers to anybody in the congregation who is unsubmissive, they're, they're self-willed, they're divisive. And ultimately, though, our goal, our goal would be redemptive in nature, to address this person, to address these things, so that they would be restored back to the fellowship, that they would be restored to a fellowship with God and to the church. MacArthur points out that the two warnings, where it says first and second warning, that uh, they are to be given following the basic pattern for church discipline set forth by Christ. So he sees that as an allusion back to when Paul was teaching about church discipline in the book of Matthew, which I would agree. So you, you, you bring forth truth that exposes their sin. If they continue, you bring others into the picture. But the goal is that they would repent. However, they condemn themselves when they reject the warnings and the clear teaching of the Bible. And they pursue what they think is right in their own eyes. Uh, it, it's a difficult situation, but we're called to respond in a godly way. And sometimes this godly way is a loving way, which means we have to reject them. Um, but this, this means of rejecting is so that hopefully they would find themselves at the end of their rope, that they would find themselves with no hope, with no fellowship, that they would repent and either truly believe or turn back to the fellowship. So this is hard. It can get messy. So we ought to prayerfully walk through this type of situation. We've got to pray for the factious person. Let me repeat that. We have to pray for the factious person. And that we would pray for them and that we would pray for our own heart in the matter. And remember that all of these things which I mentioned above, they're reminders for us as we are walking in our pursuit of God, that we would honor God in our living. Remember, Paul's last piece of advice was in verse 14, that Christians would learn to engage in good deeds, striving to meet the needs of one another so that their lives would not be unproductive or fruitless. So it takes reminders 
like what we have seen in this text. And as I mentioned before, there is a lot in this. This could be four sermons. What I've done is I've skipped the rock across the pond, as it were. And hopefully they were reminders to get you thinking as you go into this next week. Ask yourself how you're doing in your obligation for godly living. And does your doctrine match your conduct? Do you feel that it's a bit cumbersome to engage in good deeds? If so, I would encourage you to go back and read verses 3-7 through and examine the motivations for the godly living. Be reminded of these rich truths. And if you have not experienced those rich truths, then I urge you today to recognize what has been said, that we are by nature sinners to one day sin by choice, and because of that sin, it separates us from a right relationship with a good and holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that He had, those who would believe in Him, He sent Christ to die. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserved, and He was raised. And because He lives, we can live also. If we would trust in that truth and trust in that message, trust in the person, then you can be saved. You can have a right relationship with God. And to you, Christian, do you have an urgency in your response for godly living? Because it's high time, and we cannot put it off, and we cannot waste the moments that we have. So be reminded of these truths. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness. God, we thank you that we are deserving of nothing good, but you in your goodness have extended so much. And we pray, God, that we would take this word to heart. God, that we would find the motivation, that we would respond, that we would be able to um, be steadfast and immovable knowing that there's much opposition on the horizon. May you sustain us and keep us. May the joy of the Lord truly be our strength. And God, I thank you for this congregation. We lift up this congregation to you. That they would continue to be faithful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of who you are. And God, we pray for Pastor Dan that you would continue to strengthen his body and bring him here soon to be able to, to guide and shepherd his congregation once again, Lord. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.